0: I'm Tommy Salmons. This is Year Zero. Like so many people today, uh, I enjoy a good conspiracy. It's a lot of fun. And uh, after the entire Russiagate hoax, and then the beginning of the impeachment inquiry, I was like, man, these people are obsessed with conspiracies that that even more so than me. You know, I'll I'll talk about, you know, provable instances in which the CIA acted, how they act, how they have have overthrown governments in favor of certain corporations or certain you know, friendly business deals for them, how they're, they're in bed with oil companies and gas companies around the world, um, how they're in bed with bankers around the world, how they manipulate currencies and, you know, uh, how they've tested drugs on U.S. citizens. You know, I, I'll talk about those things, but um, these... Trump, Russia, and and Ukraine impeachment scandals are just in, incredible, as far as I'm concerned. Especially when you start really looking at it. But when I first when it when everything was first going on here for the last you know couple of years, maybe I was just blind. Maybe I wasn't reading enough about the subjects. Um, hold on one second. I'm gonna drink my coffee this morning but uh, maybe I wasn't reading enough about the subjects uh, which is probably the case because I didn't find it extremely interesting in any any way I found it a waste of time and just boring but when, when it came out that you know we had been hearing for a while that the mainstream press had been accusing Tulsi Gabbard of being, uh, an Assad toady. And then suddenly this whole Russia narrative started around her as well. And, you know, it really pe- peaked and it really caught attention when Hillary Clinton came out and said that she was, a. Uh, at the very best, Hillary Clinton accused her of being a useful idiot, and I don't think that's what she meant, but I think uh, I think you know she was trying to cover her ass and oh, I was talking about Republicans and yada, yada, yada. all right well, in your, li- in your lingo, Republican and Russian are you know interchangeable Ugh. at least that's the way it seems the last few years. So I started looking at it. And I was like, okay, this isn't partisan. There's there's more going on here. There's this is this has to do with status quo more so than partisanship. So, you know, one of the things they always point to on the campaign trail was when Trump said that he thought he could get along with Putin and that they would get along great. And that's just, that's who Trump is. And most of us know this. Um, I can't remember who I heard say it, but I thought it was a pretty, pretty, uh, intelligent breakdown. There is, uh, they said, uh, Trump supporters take Trump seriously, but not literally. And Democrats take Trump literally, but not seriously. And I'm somewhere in between is sometimes I take him seriously and sometimes I take him literally, but I very rarely, uh, get caught up in the minutia of just the Trump derangement syndrome as it's been come to come to be known. But, uh, pinky, what are you doing? But so I spent all last week going through this, this entire impeachment and Russia, uh, scandal and finding ties between the two. One, one, Significant tie that I think will shed some light on the subject, but before I I dig into all those articles that that I've been been reading, I want to I want to start off with this uh, with parts of this transcript from Angelo Cattavella Cot- Codavilla. I don't know I don't know how to pronounce his name Codavilla. Code Villa yeah, Villa, I think it is, um, in which uh, a friend of mine shared with me, and uh, I found this this entire interview quite telling, and so I'd taken some notes, and I'm not going to read the entire thing, just par- parts of it. There's some uh, interesting parts that I thought would introduce... Introduce the ideas I'm about to present you, and frame it in order for you to see these these scandals, these um, these conspiracy theories in the in the way that I'm seeing. So, and I'm going to quote uh, Villa now. The United States has developed a ruling class that sees itself as distinct from the raw masses. <clears throat> Excuse me. And by the raw masses, you know, he's talking about the deplorables, the racists, the Nazis, the rest of America. This is what Cotavilla calls the, the, the country party. He continues, the, de- the Democrats were the senior partners in the ruling class, The Republicans are the junior partners. So this becomes blatantly obvious when you discuss politics with a Democrat. Their first reaction, if you disagree with them, is that you're backwards or uneducated. You need to read more. You need to do this. They have this really, really uh, bigoted, you know, elitism about themselves to where if you don't agree with them 100 percent, then there's something wrong with you. And he can. Cottavilla continues, the American ruling class was built by or under the Democratic Party, first under Woodrow Wilson and then later under Franklin Roosevelt. It was a ruling class that prized above all its intellectual superiority, superiority over the ruled. Uh, Man, I'm tongue tied when I I haven't had all my coffee yet. The class that was naturally best able to run society and was therefore entitled to run society. He, he's framing it as Democrats here. And I don't know, you run, I mean, you run into socialists. You even run into conservatives, um, that want to engineer society. Um, now they're more interested in engineering social programs than they are engineering, uh, economic programs, but. But he does make a a point about the engineering of society. I think if you. Yeah, I don't know. I think he's trying to differentiate between the elitist class and the Democrats. But by starting it, talking about the Democratic Party, I found that a little bit like, well, I don't know. You're going to find. These other guys too. So I think what he's trying to say is the elitist class believe that they are more uh, capable of engineering society and of 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 uh, structuring society in a more I would I, I would say utopian, but I feel like that's a little bit too um, you know derogatory. Because I don't know if they actually believe there could be a utopia, but they they do believe that there could be a best case scenario, and uh, this is something that a um, big new Brzezinski discusses in in the Grand Chessboard, and he's and he's talking about why American hegemony is is so important around the world, and the basic belief is, and and I think this is what. The you get when you get into politics of any sort, but this is how the geopolitical sphere works, and I think this is how this is how I read the political atmosphere uh, of the voting voting class versus the non-voting class, uh, for lack of better terms. But you have there's this idea, and like I said, Brzezinski. Uh, expounds on this majorly when it comes to american hegemony um in in the grand chessboard but the idea is that if we don't rule somebody else will right so you got this binary so that so that works perfectly for this binary lesser of two evils cause because it's like well i either got to get my guy to rule whether he's perfect or not or this other person is going to be ruling And that's the problem with the power that's within the politics and within D.C. And that's that's the same way that Brzezinski looked at American hegemony, that either the U.S. has to be the sole global power or somebody else is going to take up that mantle. Right. So there's a lot of flaws to this thinking. But but I think this is just the general like binary concept that these people view the world from. So Cotavilla continues, the Republican members of the ruling class aspire to that sort of intellectual status or reputation. As the junior members of the ruling class, they are not nearly as tied to government as the Democrats are. He seems here he's overlooking the, the worship of the military and the police. Um, the, the Republican elites are certainly interested in pressuring every living being to adhere to American or Western cultural norms through the spreading of democracy and American interests at home and abroad. Not only are they interested, they were among the first to the party through the infiltration of Republican realpolitik by the Trotsky neocons that took over the party after the Reagan administration. So, again, I think he's... I, I think he's taken it a little easy on the Republicans here. I think he's given them a little bit too much of a pass, but, but we do the point stands because I think of the John McCain's, uh, the Mitt Romney's, the Mitch McConnell's. I mean, these people are just as buried in government as any of the Democrats, you know, they they the republicans have their ruling elite now what i think makes the republicans a little bit different <clears throat> is i think you have in the republican party you have more opportunity for an average joe to to enter into politics We've seen it uh, a little bit this year with with the Democrats, with Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, with uh, Ilhan Omar. Um, uh, there was there were a couple of others that I, I just can't think of their names right now off the top of my head. But so they've gotten some fairly average, ordinary people, whether you agree with them or not. What what the what the point of this is is when you're framing this, the the Mike Lee, the Rand Paul, the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the Ilhan Omar are all the same from from the point of view of the elite from the Nancy Pelosi, Mitt Romney, John McCain, you know, Hillary Clinton class of individual. These are two different things. Okay? So when you look at it like the neoliberal and the neocon, the the those buried in the politics and and dependent upon the politics of of the U S they are, um, essentially one party. And when you break out of that mold, you end up over with the Alexandria Ocasio Cortez's or the Mike Lee's, you know, type or the Justin Amash. And, and so, so you have to, at least I do. I view AOC and and like Mike Lee very similar, just in their um, influence within Washington. That they aren't part of this corporate elite that that are bought into power that are are um, exercising special favors, not not intentionally. You know, as as Clapper would say, maybe unwittingly, but but I I view them kind of the same. I, I I watch the way that the mainstream media or the corporate media, whatever term you prefer, and the corporate elites, the the ensnared political, um, you know, uh, career. Politicians are are talking about you know the Tulsi Gabbards and and the uh, Justin Amash's you know I I pay attention to that because it's not that different you know so when you have like Adam Schiff if 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 Adam Schiff or Nancy Pelosi were attacking AOC I would probably be on the side of AOC like ninety percent of the time because despite how much I disagree with her politically. I understand that she is just a regular person, right? <clears throat> now, you 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 take into consideration the Democrat successes in championing human rights and controlling the narrative. The public is much more vulnerable to the foreign policy ambitions of the elites since the Democrats started championing war. I find that really interesting that the 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 party of the sixties, you know, of free speech and of civil rights has turned out to be the most useful tool for the foreign policy establishment elites to continue their world domination, the, the the spread of American hegemony, the spread of democracy. Cudavilla continues, proximity to government power has meant and does mean more money and greater possibility. The point of the ruling class is precisely the confusion of public and private power. This is, in fact, this is becoming, in fact, a corporate state, which, by the way, was pioneered by one of my former countrymen by the name of Benito, because Caravillo is or Cattavilla is from northern Italy, just as Benito Mussolini was. Parties are by nature coalitions, each part of which benefits from the other, but they share certain things in common. One of them is contempt for Americans who are outside of their ranks. So when he's talking about this coalition, this party, this coalition, he's talking, he's talking Silicon Valley, academia, corporate media, politicians. He's talking about the the enshrined power, those that are put in, are in these positions for a lifetime, that you're not going to get, um, you're not going to get let say, uh, what's her name? Uh, God damn it. That fucking crazy bitch. Um, Rachel Maddow to take Donald Trump side over Nancy Pelosi's side. It's just not going to happen. This is ensnared and it's created this corruption and the proximity to the government that these people enjoy is actually where the corruption has come from because through their proximity, they're experiencing power and money that they would have never had before. This is probably going to be a long episode because we're just getting started. So what I wanted to illustrate by going through this Villa piece is, is how someone who is a former Senate staffer in control of the intelligence budget uh, has, has started to, has views DC and the elite. <clears throat> what I found most revealing about this is how Cotavilla hit the Trump moment on the head. The belief that those drawn to intellectual pursuits are more suited to engineer the society and dictate life choices for the working man somehow convincing half of the country to ignore their desires and self-interest as they pursue the utopia only they are qualified to lead us to is what brought about an atmosphere for a Trump. The real problem is they haven't learned. But given the breakdown we just explored, is it any wonder? They don't see Trump as a rebuke to their policies. They see Trump as proof they have to take the reins. They see Trump as proof that the average man is not as sophisticated, and and is is too stupid to decide for themselves. <clears throat> when they, you get when they they're showing you, they're pointing out every day, look what happens when we don't have control. Look what happens when and when average citizens take control and elect some some fucking moron, some orange Mussolini or whatever you want to call him. You get Trump. You get racism, xenophobia, phone calls, babies un- uh, getting thrown out of incubators. You know, like they're just gonna keep like they're gonna keep throwing this. And that was a joke. If y'all didn't catch that, sorry. I'm I'm not delivering well. I'm I'm still half asleep. But I had time to do this this morning, so I wanted to get it done. So C- Cotto Villa continues to drive home this point. He says, the basis of the revolt is simple. We realize that you hate us, and therefore we hate you back. And we will take anybody, not that we found this man who fits our description because Donald Trump didn't fit anybody's description of what they wanted, but we will take anybody who will take a swing at you which is why I originally wrote at the back of that essay that this revolution would be for the better or the worse because of the urgency that the country class felt for getting out of all of this. Now, so here's the real tragedy of them not learning. They're further ostracizing those that felt so abandoned and taken advantage of that they used Trump as a middle finger. And since Trump was elected, these elotes Elites, both Democrat and Republicans, have been working tirelessly to reclaim their power, to overthrow the will of the people. They're not going to sit back and and fight from the inside and and just deal with the next four years or eight years. And honestly, if Trump would have had a smooth transition into government— As bad as he is on so many things, I don't think he would have had a second term. I don't think he would have had an opportunity for a second term. But these, the constant barrage of the media and and the political elites, you know, attacking him every single day. You know the Maxine Waters insanity and this, that, and the other. That has just made people like him even more in a lot of cases, you know, because they're like, well, yeah, this is why we elected him. He pisses you people off. That's what we wanted. We're telling you people to go fuck yourselves, you know, and they don't see this at all. Like I said, they think this isn't a rebuke on them. They think this just proves how much America needs them, you know. So he goes the uh, Vila further on in the article and this is a really long transcript and it's, it but it's really really interesting. I'm I actually because I did so much work on this, I'm doing something I never do. I'm putting all the show notes in the page uh, in in the in, I mean all the articles in the show notes on the libertarianinstitute.org. So you'll be able to follow like, you'll be able to grab every article I was, I was, I've used for this podcast and, and see, you know, all the details and, and where these articles overlap with each other. But anyway, he continues, there's always danger inherent in secrecy. Secrecy most often is used not for the good of the operation, but to safeguard the reputations of those who are running the operations. The agencies, like all bureaucracies, have always tried to aggrandize themselves. But the business they're in, which involves surveillance, is uniquely dangerous, because surveillance is inherently a political weapon, inherently so, and there is never any lack of appetite for increasing the power of surveillance and for increasing the reach of surveillance." Then along came 9/11, and congressmen, senators who didn't know any better, and for for that matter, presidents were very easily persuaded that giving the agency something close to carte blanche for electronic surveillance would help to keep the country safe. The Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act (FISA) was amended in 2008 to accommodate the practices which had evolved. Extra legally under George Bush, which essentially allowed the agencies to wiretap at will so long as they claimed that this was for foreign intelligence purposes. In this regard, they claimed that what they were doing was within the spirit, excuse me, if not the letter of the FISA Act, or if not the letter of FISA. There we go. All right. So, that's where I wanted to – that's basically all I wanted to touch on from that article. <clears throat> but this leads me to <clears throat> some, some really major points when it comes to talking about the impeachment in Trump-Russia, okay? Because like I said earlier, it's one and the same thing, and I, I, I hope I'm able to illustrate that. Uh, well and at least give you my a a good perspective as to why I think it's one and the same and and what's happening and I'm not claiming to be the only one on top of this um, but I think I'm the only one trying to attack this from a position of non-partisanship so that's kind of my goal here but we know that the trump campaign was under surveillance now how did how did the trump campaign get under surveillance there there was a fisa warrant that was approved for carter page but that's just for carter page right well not necessarily in the fisa the laws of fisa and the, and the wiretapping in general, the NSA has the power to what they call a two-hop rule, okay? What this means, what this two-hop rule means is that if you're wiretapping me, okay, if you're surveilling me, then legally you have the right to surveil everyone i talk to but not only do you have the right to surveil everyone i talk to you have the right to surveil everyone that i talk to talks to okay you see what i'm saying so one hop would be everyone i talk to the second hop would be everyone that they talk to so you you have just turned it from one person into three, 400 people that you are legally allowed to surveil, right? So if I were in communication with, let's say, um, a foreign terrorist, let's say, okay? And even if I didn't know he was a foreign terrorist, right? And it's just somebody I knew and they call me up. And they're under surveillance. Now, suddenly, I'm under surveillance. And then everybody I talk to is now also under surveillance just by having that communication. Right? So, what what the bet is, is Carter Page fell under surveillance. And I bet that either he directly spoke to President Trump or he directly spoke to someone who directly spoke to President Trump, giving the two-hop the the surveillance power over Donald Trump. So they were le- within their bounds, legally within their bounds, to surveil Donald Trump. Now, we all know today that these FISA warrants were based off of the Steele dossier, which turned out to be a bunch of shit, and I will get into that. Here shortly. Actually, the first article I'm going to touch on from 2007, written by Glenn Simpson, political hack and employee of Fusion GPS, and his wife, Mary Jacoby, is called How Lobbyists Help Ex Soviets Woo Washington. And this this article serves as some great importance today, and I will hopefully explain why in an intelligent manner. But I'm going to continue to drink my coffee, if you will forgive me for that. So in the article from 2007, again, this will be in the notes for the page, so you will be able to read this entire article to completion if you would like. Glenn Simpson and Mary Jacoby write, ex soviets are lining up to hire help with criminal cases, lobbying, and consulting. To persuade investors and regulators, they are committed to good corporate governance. As they wrest ever greater control of Eurasia's vast energy reserves and other natural resources, all have become politically powerful in their home countries as well making them and by extension their US advisors key players in western efforts to promote regional stability now this is a insight as to russian where russian relations were at this time in 2007 but here's where it gets interesting you might recognize some of these names alpha is has paid Barber Griffith and Rogers, the influential lobbying firm co-founded by Mississippi Governor Haley Barber, nearly $2 million in lobbying fees. Paul Manafort has advised the Ukrainian metals billionaire and his close political ally, Ukrainian Prime Minister Viktor Yanukovych, Mr. Yanukovych, who favors closer ties with Putin's administration, is embroiled in a power struggle with pro-Western Ukrainian president, Viktor Yushchenko. Yushchenko, Yushchenko. God damn it. (laughs) So in 2010, after this article was written, Yanukovych was elected as Ukraine's president, giving Manafort unprecedented access But his proximity to Putin endangered his presidency. In 2014, he was removed from power, and in retaliation to the U.S.-backed coup, Putin took Crimea as a strategic port without killing anybody, let's remember. Nobody died in that. The The Russian military told the Ukrainian military, this is ours now, and the Ukrainian military said, all right, I ain't fighting over this shit, and they left. The article continues, Mr. Manafort, who isn't registered as a consultant to the Ukrainian leader, didn't respond to request for comment. So what they got Manafort for was exactly this. So this information was available in 2007, and they did not convict him until 2019 or 2018 with this whole Trump-Russia scandal, because... Prior to him having him being in the annals of power in Washington, D.C., his and working against the elitist and the establishment foreign policy, that his ties to Yanukovych was actually quite uh, useful. They gave them a way to watch Yanukovych, right? Now, another name that pops up in the 2007 article is Oleg Deripaska. I'm really bad with these fucking names. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm white, I'm American, and I'm goddamn tired. Deripaska was an associate of Bob Dole when a ma- Manafort worked for, for Dole. He was accused of a multitude of crimes, including extortion and bribery. In the midst of the Mueller probe, sanctions were leveled at him, and he filed a lawsuit against the Treasury Department, claiming over $7 billion in losses due to the sanctions. But there's another tie to Deripaska you haven't been told about. John Solomon wrote in March of 2018, I believe it's a Hill article, under the title, title Mueller may have a conflict, and it leads directly to a Russian oligarch. And this article reads, in 2009, when Mueller ran the FBI, the Bureau asked Russian oligarch Oleg Deripaska to spend millions of his own dollars funding an FBI supervised operation to rescue a retired FBI agent, Robert Levinson, captured in Iran while working for the CIA in 2007. The Levinson mission is confirmed by more than a dozen participants inside and outside the FBI, including Deripaska, his lawyer, the Levinson family, and a retired agent who supervised the case. Mueller was kept apprised of the operation. So when you, when you realize that Deripaska has these ties to, to Mueller and the CIA... You realize that, okay, it would be easy for them to use Deripaska, to leverage Deripaska, to take partial truths about Manafort, his former relationship with the ousted president of Ukraine, and charge him with financial crimes known about for over a decade. But what does this have to do with investigation into Trump? All right, so we'll move on to Lee Smith article in Tablet. Did President Obama read the Steele dossier in the White House last August? In a Facebook post from June 24, 2017, Mary Jacoby claimed that her husband deserves the lion's share of credit for Russiagate. It's come to my attention, She this is quoting Mary J- Jacoby's Facebook post, it's come to my attention that some people still don't realize What Glenn's role was in exposing Putin's control of Donald Trump, Jacoby wrote. Let's be clear. Glenn conducted the investigation. Glenn hired Chris Steele. Chris Steele worked for Glenn. This assertion is hardly a simple assertion of family pride. It goes directly to the nature of what became known as the Steele dossier on which the Russiagate narrative is founded. So she's admitting there. This article, this Glenn Simpson article from 2007 is what became known as the Steele dossier. It was at least the the foundation for it. It gave the insight into Alpha Bank. It gave the insight into Paul Manafort, right? <clears throat> they dig up, you know, a little bit of sleuth here and, and scum there and whether it's true or not, you pay the right people to, to find information, they're going to make up some information. I mean, we're well aware that if you pay bad people to do things in, for the U.S. government, a lot of times good people end up dying, right? This has been the story of Afghanistan and Iraq. Now, what, what's interesting, and I don't know if this was a slip of tongue or if this is just complete hubris by Brennan, but he implicates himself in the drafting or at least the foreknowledge of the dossier. So that same article goes on to talk about Brennan. Brennan was so concerned about Russian efforts to help Trump that he briefed top lawmakers including Senate Minority Leader Harry Reid. In the August briefing for Mr. Reid, the Times-related, Mr. Brennan indicated that the CIA focused on foreign intelligence was limited in its legal ability to investigate possible connections to Mr. Trump. That briefing prompted Reid to write a public letter to the agency responsible for collecting domestic intelligence. On August 29th, Reed wrote to FBI Director James Comey that the threat of Russian interference is more extensive than is widely known and may include the intent to falsify official election results. Recent classified briefings from senior intelligence officials, Reed told the New York Times in an interview, have left him fearful that President Vladimir Putin's goal is tampering with the election. So in a later interview, Brennan says that the information he shared with Reed was not gotten from the dossier because he didn't see the dossier until a month later. So he's creating a parallel construction narrative. All right. So I don't know if you know what parallel construction is. I'll break it down for you real quick. Parallel construction is a legal term that allows the FBI or NSA to break the law. So what you'll what will happen is the NSA, let's say the NSA is illegally spying on an American citizen. They're illegally surveilling an American citizen and they get dirt on this American citizen and they see, oh, shit, this dude is is selling cocaine by the fucking pound. You know, he's he's running kilos of coke a week, let's say. So they turn the information over to the FBI, but because the information was acquired illegally, they cannot. The FBI cannot use that information as they obtained it from the NSA. So what their job is to go out and to construct a parallel narrative that cosigns with the information they got from the NSA, right? So now it's there. They know what the guy's doing. They have the crime, but they don't have a way of, of, of uh, proving the crime in a court of law legally. So what they'll do is they turn around and they go and they hire informants or they, or they uh, use other means to acquire the same information so that now they, they can prosecute the person that they have the information on which is what you saw happening here. Brennan was constructing a parallel construction argument where he had two sources giving him the same information. One source he could not give up in August, and then the second source was the Steele dossier, and it was the same information. Now, did Brennan get this information from Christopher Steele himself, who had ties to the intelligence uh bureaucracy in in the united states did he get it from the glenn simpson article did he get it from fusion gps or did he actually help draft the steel dossier and therefore he knew everything that was going to be in the steel dossier so when it ran across his desk in september when john mccain and his staff released it to the the media and and people and it became public knowledge was he able to say, well, this verifies what I already know. This just verifies what I already know. I have sources that have told me this. You see what I'm saying? So there's this parallel construction that's happening where now we have two sources. So it's got to be true. <clears throat> the article continues. In October, shortly after Comey reopened the investigation into Hillary Clinton's emails, Reed wrote another public letter to the FBI chief. This one even more heated. Reid was angry that Comey seemed to be turning the heat up on Clinton while letting Trump slide. In my communications with you and other top officials in the national security community, writes Reid, it has become clear that you possess explosive information about close ties and coordination between Donald Trump, his top advisors, and the Russian government a foreign interest openly hostile to the United States with Trump praises at every opportunity he said i wrote to you months ago calling for this information to be released to the public and yet you continue to resist calls to inform the public of this critical information so now it's starting to become obvious that these the CIA is using these political means, they're using these political elites, these these well-connected D.C. elitist, uh, these these political lifetimers, if you will, the they're using them as a tool to continue to, their attacks on Donald Trump. If you remember right, was it Chuck Schumer that said the intelligence agencies have six way from Sunday of getting back at you? See, Donald Trump had already gone after the top echelon of the intelligence agencies prior to him becoming, uh, prior to his inauguration. So they were, they were mad. They were, they were wanting to go after him. They were wanting dirt on him. They were going to fucking put him in his place, right? The article continues. It began according to a June 23, 2017 Washington Post article when an envelope with extraordinary handling restrictions arrived at the Washington, uh, I'm sorry, arrived at the White House. Sent by courier from the CIA, it carried eyes only instructions that its contents be shown to just four people, President Barack Obama and three senior aides. Now, this article is is asking, is this the dossier? Was, was President Obama aware of the steel dossier in August of 2016? Did he already know what was going on? Inside was an intelligence bombshell, writes Greg Miller. Ellen Nakashima and Adam Entis. Oh, writes Greg Miller, Ellen Nakashima, and Adam Entis quote from the 2017 article, a report drawn from sourcing deep inside the Russian government that detailed Russian President Vladimir Putin's direct involvement in a cyber campaign to disrupt and discredit the U.S. presidential race. But it went further. The intelligence captured Putin's specific instructions on the operation's audacious objectives, defeat or at least damage the Democrat nominee Hillary Clinton and help elect her opponent, Donald Trump. The article explains that the material was so sensitive that CIA director, John Brennan, kept it out of the president's daily brief, concerned that even that restricted report's distribution was too broad. The article wraps up. If the CIA had a human intelligence source that close to Putin, publication of the Post article could have exposed that source, doing incalculable damage to American national security. He and many of his loved ones would then have presumably died horrible deaths. Or, as Mary Jacoby surmised, it was her husband's handiwork that landed on the president's desk. But what if it was her husband's handiwork? And the additional information within that handiwork, known as the Steele dossier today, the prostitutes pissing on the bed all the Carter Page information and all that was actually leaked to them by a source close to Vladimir Putin. Now, the statement that stood out to me, the CIA had a human intelligence source that close to Putin. Obviously, that's going to stand out to me because I'm looking at this from an intelligence uh, standpoint Uh, operation, not from a partisanship operation. This reminded me of a Consortium News article that I read suggesting the intelligence coming from a Russian source was disinformation to further inflame political tensions in the U.S. And it worked. This is an article written by Scott Ritter in September 2019 called The Spy Who Walked Away. And I'm just going to I got a few, probably, I don't know, five, six paragraphs from this and some notes I I took on it. Reports that the CIA conducted an emergency exfiltration of a longtime human intelligence source who was highly placed within the Russian presidential administration sent shockwaves throughout Washington, D.C. The source was said to be responsible for the reporting used by the former director of the CIA, John Brennan. Okay? So, is... Is this source feeding John Brennan the information to get into Christopher Steele's hands to to complete the narrative that Glenn Simpson had started in 2007? In making the case that Russian President Vladimir Putin personally ordered Russian intelligence services to interfere in the 2016 U.S. presidential election for the purpose of tipping the scales in favor of then-candidate Donald Trump, there was a Russian spy whose information was used to push a narrative of Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election. This much appears to be true. Everything else that has been reported is either a mischaracterization of fact or an outright fabrication designed to hide one of the greatest intelligence failures in U.S. history. <clears throat> Excuse me. Oleg Smolenkov, a young diplomat on the rise, worked as a second secretary assigned to the Russian Culture Center. The CIA and FBI, this is my notes, the CIA and FBI are constantly looking for Russians tied to the government to turn into spies. Given the agency Smolenkov worked for was believed to be tied to Russian intelligence, the CIA and FBI were willing to jump at a junior staffer dissatisfied with his employ in hopes that he'd be promoted and have access to sensitive information. Back to the article. Smolnikov took up a position working for Yushikov, and soon found himself moving up the ranks of the Russian Civil Service, being promoted in 2010 to the rank of state advisor to the Russian Federation of the Third Class, a second-tier rank that put him on the cusp of joining the upper levels of the Russian government bureaucracy. He was granted a second level security clearance, which allowed him to handle top secret information. In 2013, Yushikov received a new assignment, this time to serve in the presidential executive office as the aide for international relations. Smolenkov joined Yushikov as as, as his staff manager. So now you want to talk about a two-hop rule. You have Yushikov as an aide for international relations, answering directly to Putin, being promoted at the discretion of Putin because he had worked with Putin for a long time when Putin was prime minister, and Ushakov takes Smolenkov, the intelligence asset, with him. And in 2011, the clandestine station chief in Moscow was confronted by FSB and told to stop attempting to infiltrate the Russian government. In 2013, two clandestine officers were expelled by Russia, but somehow Smolenkov was able to continue to slip through the cracks. Much of the intelligence on Russia interference came from Smolenkov. After the 2016 election, the CIA CIA offered him immunity, but he declined, staying in Russia, unconcerned about his safety. The CIA had been fed misinformation by this key recruit. Now, what got us here? Because after the Cold War, things seemed to be going along just fine with Russia. The war on terror was the new evil. Russia posed no threat. But deep in the recesses of power, they, re- they waited for Russia's rise. The PNAC document uh, memorandum. Um, talks about this. Um, There's a big new... Brzezinski discusses this. They all knew that Russia was going to come back to power. So the the idea was to expand American hegemony as much as possible prior to Russia's uh, ascent to another political power uh, once again. You know, even... And as they began to see Russia's ascent to power and, and Russia becoming another, a superpower again, I mean, we offered reset buttons and business dealings, uranium, gas, oil, whatever served their purpose. But they never viewed Russia as anything more than competition to be taken out. <clears throat> Some rumors flew that Russia may be invited into NATO. But they always made sure that the terms were too difficult for Russia to agree to. Russia was never to be an ally. Russia was to be a subject. This was all about full-spectrum dominance. This was about American hegemony. And when Dole began dealing with Russian businesses prior to the 2008 election, Hillary contacted her political operative, Glenn Simpson, who worked for Fusion GPS and wrote for the Wall Street Journal, to reveal the lobbying and the business dealings that were taking place behind the scenes from people like Bob Dole, who viewed Russia as a sovereign nation and not as a potential proxy of the United States. Okay, so now we get the Uranium One scandal. And here's a little bit from an article on the Uranium One scandal. Before the Obama administration approved a controversial deal in 2010 giving Moscow control of a large swath of American uranium, the FBI had gathered substantial evidence that Russian nuclear industry officials were engaged in bribery, kickbacks, extortion, and money laundering. They also obtained an eyewitness account backed by documents indicating Russian nuclear officials had routed millions of dollars to the U.S. designed to benefit former President Bill Clinton's charitable foundation during the time Secretary of State Hillary Clinton served on a government body that provided a favorable decision to Moscow. Now, records show this started in 2009 and ran until 2011 when they wised up. But was it the U.S. that wised up or was it Putin that wised up? Was this a cover? Was this whole uranium scandal a cover in order to implement, create uh, 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 a precedent in Russia for an American company and an American resource to leverage against Russia and create this proxy force out of Russia and get Russia to bend to American supremacy and American dominance and stop trying to compete? Was this all a charade and and just um, a tactic used in order to put Russia in a position where they had no choice but to submit, to make them so dependent for nuclear energy on the United States that they would have to deal with the U.S. on a level that benefited American interest? Before it benefited Russian interest, because this is how these things work, right? This is if if you don't, if you don't bow to American interests and allow us to turn those screws of dominance and really bend knee to American dominance. Then you're in, then there's the potential, there's the danger, there's the threat of a coup led by America, financed and trained by the CIA. So is there any evidence that between 2009 and 2011, when this Uranium One scandal was actually taking place, America was trying to leverage political power and authority over Russia and when, when uh, the intelligence agencies realized it wasn't going to work, they started taking action in order to overthrow Vladimir Putin and the, and the existing Russian government. Well, Vladimir Putin thinks so. In December 2011, ABC reported, Prime Minister Vladimir Putin has accused the United States of stirring up protests against his 12-year rule, and said foreign countries were spending hundreds of millions of dollars to influence Russian elections. Mr. Putin said U.S. Secretary of State Hillary Clinton had encouraged Kremlin opponents by criticizing the vote. She set the tone for some opposition activists, gave them a signal. They heard the signal and started active work. Now, something had to be done. Not only is Putin on to spy operations within the Russian government, he's on to an attempt to disrupt Russia's sovereignty and Ukraine's new president's buddy-buddy with Putin. So what's the U.S. going to do? Well, they're going to overthrow. It was time to take action in order to gain control of the natural gas sector, sector of Eastern Europe. Why is the natural gas sector so important in Eastern Europe? The same reason oil is important all over the world. Everybody needs it. It's something that's needed. The natural gas sector is some of the biggest business and is some of the most corrupt business in the Ukraine and Russia. So now enters billionaire friend for the assist. This is where it gets interesting. June 2014, Fareed Zakaria, or Z- Zakaria, I think it's Zakaria, he works for CNN, interviews George Soros. Zakaria asks, Soros, first on Ukraine, one of the things that many people recognize about you was that you, during the revolutions of 1989, funded a lot of dissident activities, civil society groups in Eastern Europe and Poland, the Czech Republic. Are you doing similar things in Ukraine? Soros. Well, I set up a foundation in Ukraine before Ukraine became independent of Russia, and the foundation has been functioning ever since and played an important part in events now. It is well known, although forbidden for the establishment media to mention, that Soros worked closely with USAID, the National Endowment for Democracy, who is now doing work that was formally assigned to the CIA. So is this a CIA cover? Is Soros a CIA asset? The International Republican Institute, the National Democrat Institute for International Affairs, the Freedom House, and the Albert Einstein Institute to infiltrate a series of color revolutions in Eastern Europe and Central Asia following the engineered collapse of the Soviet Union. Well, Russia took Soros seriously. Let's not think that Russia is not very familiar with Soros and his work. Would an independent businessman be financing color revolutions all through Eastern Europe without the assist of the CIA? Would Would he get away with it if not for the protection of the CIA and the NSC, National Security Council? I don't think so. I don't see how it's feasible that, that um, a businessman can nearly crash the Euro overnight and not only not face charges, be praised In the years that follow, unless he has really, really close ties doing a lot of high-level work for these agencies. In November 2015, CNBC reported Russia has banned a pro-democracy charity founded by hedge fund billionaire George Soros, saying the organization posed a threat to both state security and the Russian constitution. So is this a case of Russia putting two and two together? They said, man, we had these fucking crazy protests that were starting to get violent in 2011. And these protests were made up of conservatives and communists and fucking liberals and all sorts of different political ideologies. None of these people agreed with each other. The only thing they agreed on was they wanted to get Putin out of office. And Putin's been working as far as the... Nationalist Russian view. Putin's been working tirelessly to rebuild Russian sovereignty and make Russia great again. And then here we got Soros admitting that he was involved in the coup in the Ukraine in February of 2014. Is it possible that it was these Soros organizations who who organized all these fucking protests in 2011? Get this guy out of here. He's too fucking dangerous. He's too dangerous. We don't know what he's doing. Get rid of all these organizations. And this is what's going on in 2015 in Russia. August 2019, John Solomon reports in The Hill, George Soros made some big bets during the last U.S. presidential election. One was that Hillary Clinton would win the presidency. Another was that he could reshape Ukraine's government to his liking, and that his business empire might find fertile ground in that former Soviet state. So when Donald Trump's improbable march to the White House picked up steam in the spring of 2016, Team Soros marched to the top of the State Department to protect some of those investments. Then Assistant Secretary of State Victoria Nuland received repeated calls, emails, and meeting requests from Soros. According to the memos obtained through Freedom of Information Act requests, Soros got meetings when he wanted about what he wanted, including with Clinton as Secretary of State. In 2014, Soros was the creator of the anti-corruption agency in Ukraine that Obama's administration teamed up with the FBI. In this anti-corruption agency, there were four men from the anti-corruption agency that were actually arrested in Ukraine after the election of President Trump, and two of them were convicted for tampering in the U.S. election. The article continues. One DOJ investigation in 2014 targeted Ukrainian oligarch Dmitry Fertash. He and Soros both have significant ener- energy interests in Europe and rival plans to rebuild Ukraine. After Furtash's indictment, Soros's business announced plans to invest $1 billion in Ukraine. In April 2019, John Solomon reported, as Donald Trump began his meteoric rise to the presidency, the Obama White House summoned Ukrainian authorities to Washington to coordinate ongoing anti-corruption efforts inside Russia's most critical neighbor. So this is Soros' plan at work with the Anti-Corruption League. But was it Soros' plan? Do you think, again, that one man is shaping the government of the Ukraine? That one man is pulling all these strings? Or is this the foreign policy establishment, the intelligence bureaucracies at work? creating the American hegemony, full-spectrum dominance. I think the latter is more likely. So the article continues, the agenda suggested the purpose was training and coordinating coordination, but Ukrainian participants said it didn't take long during the meetings and afterwards to realize the Americans' objectives included two politically hot investigations, one that touched Vice President Joe Biden's family and one that involved a lobbying firm linked closely to then-candidate Trump. One of the Ukraine sources, Andriy Telzinko, revealed in an interview with Glenn Beck that Soros was behind the firing of Shokin as well. He stated that Soros NGOs were constantly protesting Shokin, so much so Shokin offered to meet with them. After the meeting, the protests got more intense. Then Biden made his move to withhold $1 billion, and Shokin was gone. Yuri Lutsenko then took over as lead prosecutor. In March 2019, Lutsenko told Hill TV's John Solomon in an interview that aired Wednesday that U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine, Marie Yavanovich, gave him a do not prosecute list during their first meeting. Unfortunately, from the first meeting with the US ambassador in Kiev, she gave me a list of people whom we should not prosecute. Now did this who was on this list? And who wasn't on the list? According to uh how you say this guy's name again? Telezinko, Hunter Biden and many Soros connected high level people were on the list not to prosecute, and Manafort was on the list to prosecute, to go after him. And that's what happened. Hunter Biden was let go free and clear. And when he realized, when it became apparent that Durham, through the work of Giuliani, who had turned over intense amount of records to the State Department uh, after he had been investigating the operations in the Ukraine, um, they got that information to, to Durham and Barr and there was an actual um, – the U.S. Uh, IG was actually doing a lot of investigation in the Ukraine, and that's around the time that Hunter Biden decided, okay, I don't need to be on this board of directors anymore, and he bolted. So in April of 2019, the Daily Carler had, uh, had an article, <clears throat> firms tied to Fusion GPS – Christopher Steele were paid $3.8 million by Soros-backed group. The Democracy Integrity Project, a nonprofit that receives funding from George Soros, paid firms tied to Fusion GPS and Christopher Steele more than $3.8 million in 2017. Tax filings show that the Democracy Integrity Project provided its research to government entities. The group's founder, a former staffer for Diane Fons- Feinstein, has described it as a shadow media organization that helps the government. The payments made by the Democracy Integrity Project are more than three times what the DNC and the Clinton campaign paid Fusion GPS and Steel in January. See like this is what you get you get when when Soros appears, his fingerprints end up everywhere. This guy throws money around. So freely, it is completely and totally fucking insane. I just can't bring myself to believe that there is like a Rothschild or uh, uh, a Soros, you know, conspiracy where this one guy is pulling the puppet strings of the world. I really believe that he is doing the bidding of the CIA in order for his own business interests. You know, very similar to. You know um Alan Dulles, you know going going into um, what was it Colombia and overthrowing the government for John Foster Dulles's business, you know the international fruit company, so I have a really hard time believing that he's the one pulling the strings. I just think he's such big influence and big money within the intelligence agencies, and that this is part of their it it fits right into their agenda to dominate and to create an american hegemony that they they use him at will and he's more than happy to operate within their parameters because it helps it helps him in his business so it's a win-win for both of those shit i just lost my spot give me one second i gotta find where i was it was way down here. Okay. All right. So January of 2017, to show that I'm not just reading a bunch of, excuse me, I'm not reading a bunch of uh, partisan articles. The Hill is actually probably more moderate. John Solomon did used to work for New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Associated Press. And now he's writing for The Hill, and he's done a lot of great investigation on what's going on behind the scenes with all this stuff. But in Politico, January 2017, Ukrainian efforts to sabotage Trump backfire. Kiev officials are scrambling to make amends with the president-elect after quietly working to boost Clinton. Ukrainian government officials tried to help Hillary Clinton and undermine Trump. This is when Alexandra Chalupa, friend of suspected whistleblower Eric Charmella, CIA and NSC, pop in. And I'm saying NSC for effect. I'll get to that in a minute. Manafort's work for Yanukovych caught the attention of a veteran Democratic operative named Alexandra Chalupa, who had worked in the White House office a public liaison during the Clinton administration. Chalupa went on to work as a staffer, then as a consultant for Democratic National Committee. May 2019, John Solomon reports, Ambassador Valerie Chalise's office says DNC contractor Alexandra Chalupa sought information from the Ukrainian government on Paul Manafort's dealings inside the country in hopes of forcing the issue before Congress. So it seems like this uh, do-not-prosecute list is actually working. Chalupa later tried to arrange for Ukrainian president Petro Poroshenko to comment on Manafort's Russian ties on a U.S. visit during the 2016 campaign. Now we have an impeachment because Trump and Barr began to put this together. Giuliani, like as I said, had done a majority of the work. He had turned over all his all his investigation over to the State Department. The State Department kind of shelved it, but the The Department of Justice under Barr took a look at it, you know, and Durham opened up an investigation with Barr, the IG report on FISA abuse. Well, what happened was during the summer, they interviewed Christopher Steele. And after that interview is when the NSC, according to Venman, pressured Donald Trump to make this call to the Ukraine. Right? So Donald Trump, under pressure from the National Security Council, makes this call to the Ukraine. A whistleblower comes forward and reports that Donald Trump is looking to investigate political opponents using... Uh, a quid pro quo of military weapons and military uh, financial aid to the Ukraine as leverage to get the Ukrainian government to dig up dirt on his political opponent, Joe Biden. Well, what Donald Trump, it appears to be, was actually trying to do was follow up on that 2017 Politico story that said, hey, the Ukraine was actually boosting Hillary Clinton here. So the problem is Trump keep, couldn't keep his mouth shut. He has this guy, I think his name is Sonderman, who's the EU ambassador, who's, who's also connecting with, uh, the, with Ukraine and saying, hey, man, y'all should do this for us. Y'all should do this for us. And I think in passing, it appears that Sonderman made a comment like, hey, look, we'll, we'll make sure you get this military aid if you open this investigation for us. So where Trump's real mistake was, and was there a crime committed, and did Sonderman do that under the advice of of Donald Trump? Possibly, okay? Possibly so. But that's not the point of where I'm going with this. Is after Durham interviews Christopher Steele, they had to kick this shit into full effect. Now, up until... September, Pelosi had been telling them, telling the the American people, we're not going to impeach. We're not going to impeach. This has to be a bipartisan move. This can't be partisanship. We're not going to impeach unless it's bipartisan. But suddenly, when uh, after, after Steele is interviewed... All this stuff gets put in motion in order to um, in order to impeach Donald Trump. Nancy Pelosi doesn't wait for bipartisanship. She puts the pedal to the metal and says, nope, we're impeaching. That's it. Quid pro quo. It's corruption. Now, what happened? Did George Soros, the man that can call Secretary of State on a whim, and get an appointment, call up Nancy Pelosi and say, look, they're getting close here. What the State Department, what Giuliani revealed to the State Department is gonna put us in in serious jeopardy if we don't do something about this. So we gotta flip the script. We gotta take action before action is taken against us. So they announced the impeachment and that they're gonna start an impeachment inquiry. And what happens two weeks later? Durham announces that his, the investigation into FISA abuse is now a criminal investigation. What did he find? Is he going to convene a grand jury? Is he going to start subpoenaing people? Will George Soros be one of those he subpoenas? John Brennan? Clapper? Comey? Charamella? Now, again, I say... This is the elites versus the people. They weren't happy with the election of Trump. I wasn't happy with the election of Trump, but not for the same reasons. They weren't happy with the election of Trump because Trump has shown interest into changing foreign policy. And those involved in the NSC in shaping this foreign policy around the coup, Are definitely not interested in changing foreign policy because they're looking for hegemony american full-spectrum dominance they got to keep russia they can't make russia a partner or an ally they got to keep russia submissive they got to keep russia below the united states and so what do you get you get william taylor in his opening statement, admitting that whenever he was assigned to his position in the Ukraine, that his commitment was not to the best relations between Ukraine, Russia, and the US, that his commitment was to continuing foreign policy, and that if Donald Trump tried to change foreign policy, he was going to cause a big stink, that he was out. I ain't doing it. You got Venman, Lieutenant Colonel Venman, who was part of the NSC since 2008, involved in this coup. You have Charamella, a CIA analyst and NSC member who was part of this coup in 2014. And all of them are causing a stink around the changing of foreign policy. Now, this isn't a a partisanship. This isn't a partisan witch hunt. This is the military industrial complex. This is the CIA and the NSC saying you don't have the power to change the, the policies of the permanent state. Stay in your lane, President Trump. If you get out of your fucking lane, we're going to come after you. And we got six ways from Sunday of getting back at you. That's my assessment on everything that's been going on. That's how I see the Ukrainian impeachment tying to Russia Gate, And that was a long episode. I hope y'all enjoy it. I hope there's plenty of information in there for you. And, you know, I look forward to your feedback. I'm Tommy Salmons. Late.